I come from a storytelling family, and I think I've raised a storytelling family. When I was growing up as a, as a kid, one of the things that we would often do was when all my brothers and sisters would come in, they're quite a bit older than I am, we always ended up out in the kitchen, which was one of the smallest rooms in the house, which was really saying something because we were raised in a small home. And we would sit on the tables, we would sit on the countertops, we would sit on the floors. Uh, if you were really strange, you sat on a kitchen, ta- uh, kitchen chair. But uh, we would tell stories. And they were the stories of our family. And sometimes they were the stories of people that had passed away. And we would tell about them and we would laugh together. We would uh, be sad together and missing them. Sometimes they were stories that reflected kind of the ideas that existed within our family, that which we consider to be important and that which we consider to be valuable as a family. In my family, there are stories we tell, the the story of how the boys exchanged dog food for Cocoa Puffs and that that was eaten by their older sister for several days before their giggles finally revealed the truth of what was going on. We, We tell the story of the day that dad decided to kill a moth that was on the window and swung the broom to kill the moth. It was on a window. The window shattered. And it was like, is dad really that dumb? You know, and and that kind of thing. But one of the stories we had growing up that I was not a part of because I came 16 years behind my youngest sister. So there were four of them that sort of lived together and grew up together. And then I came along. And the story is about one day, the three older ones, my sister and my two older brothers, along with a bunch of friends. At that time, they lived, the family lived off of the Lehigh River, up on on a hill above the Lehigh River. And the kids would go down and kind of play along the river. And in this particular day, the three older ones with their friends, decided to run across the ice on the Lehigh River. They ran across, and when they got to the other side, there was a train coming by. The train conductor was so concerned about what he saw these kids doing that he actually stopped the train, got out, and yelled at these kids to get home and to stop doing it. Well, they were kids. What did they do? They ran back across the river. The ice was so thin that as they were running, the ice was rippling. And somehow they made it across and back. That's not the end of the story. Five minutes later, my father comes walking down the hill and looks at this group of kids and says, so what were you doing? And he said to them, I heard you were running across the ice and they were taken home and appropriately disciplined. Now that story is told. Now the part that gets really controversial is who squealed on the older three. In my family, the rumor was it was the youngest the youngest sister, that she went home and told 
mom and dad. The, uh, she said, no, it wasn't her, that it was another kid. But that story we would tell all the time and, and how, you know, the younger sister told and she would say, no, I didn't. And the arguing would go back and forth. But this morning, the reason why I tell you that story is because I feel like my three older siblings standing out on that thin ice. Because what we're about to look at in terms of the next several weeks is what I would call theological thin ice. Now, the reason for that, um, can we turn the clock on in the back? The reason for that is that when we're dealing with this particular topic that we're going to look at over the next several weeks, that topic is one where theologians that I respect who are committed to the word of God, who are committed to good, solid exegesis, who are committed to all of those things that I consider to be important, who have a high view of scripture, that have a high view of God, that have a high view of God's word. They come to different opinions and different ideas. And so to me, I feel like it's, Thin ice. Now, there's danger to thin ice. I worked for years at a hospital out in Indiana as an orderly. It was when I was in seminary, graduate school. And I would work there, you know, during the wintertime. And every year in March or April, we would have the same thing happen. We would have a man or a woman that would come in suffering from hypothermia because they had decided to go ice fishing one last time. And they would get out on the ice and fall through. Now, when you fall through thin ice, there are times that it is incredibly dangerous. Thin ice is dangerous when the water underneath is deeper than you can stand. And this usually was what they called uh, Winona Winona Lake. And it was, you know, 20, 30 feet deep. And these people would get out on there and the ice would break and they would go down. And if they were fortunate, somebody would be there to help pull them out. If it's deep water underneath and you break through, You die. But in Sellersville, there's this ice skating rink that freezes every year. You know how deep it is? Not that deep. I don't mind walking out on thin ice on the skating pond. I figure if I break through, I have wet feet. I have wet pants at the bottom. I'll just step back up and keep going. Well, if what makes theological thin ice is the differences that may exist among men that are equally respectable in their views of Scripture, what makes it, whether or not it's deep or shallow, is the impact it has on my Christian faith. There is some ice that I walk on that if it broke, my Christian faith would die. I call them the deadly doctrines. 
And the reason why I call them that is because hopefully I would die for them. Doctrines like that salvation is by faith in the work of Christ upon the cross. Doctrines like the fact that Christ was both man and God. Doctrines like the fact that that, uh, God is Trinity. I will hopefully die for those. And the reason is, is because my Christian faith depends on those things being true. Paul said, if Jesus is not resurrected, if Jesus did not come back to life, then we're all gathered here are fools. Because our faith dies. But there are other doctrines upon which we do not die. One is eschatology. The, the doctrines of the end times, what's going to happen um, in the future. I happen to be a premillennialist. I believe that the Lord will return before the beginning of the millennium and we will usher into a literal thousand-year reign of Christ that will come to an end when Christ comes back and defeats Satan for the very last time. And then all of the eternal realities of heaven and hell and all that exists take place at that time. There are others who would be called all millennialists who believe that we are in the kingdom now and that when the Lord returns, he comes to bring in eternity. I will have fun arguing with you about that. But I'm not dying over that. We can talk about what God is like in some of the more detailed aspects of his personality as we struggle through what it means for God to be sovereign and what it means for man to have free will. And we can come back and forth. I will die over the fact that both exist, but how they work out? We'll just have a great discussion. We're about to enter one of those areas. That he has to deal with the whole teaching of scripture about men and women. About gender. About what it is that man and woman is in terms of their interaction with one another. And what are the implications of that as we live that out as an individual man or woman. As we live it out as families in which there exist men and women. And at what we do as a church, as we live out those implications of God's teaching about men and women. This is not a deadly doctrine. This is not one that I'm willing to die over. In fact, I struggle. I'm kind of, um, kind of in the middle of the two extremes, what I see as the extremes. And exactly where I fall on that. I I really pray and think about it. And I've been praying and thinking about this for several years. But as a church, we need to take a position. And what we're in the process of doing is over the next several weeks, I'm going to be preaching on this topic. Uh, I mentioned that I forgot the mic this morning. I was trying to think out why. One of the reasons I think... It's because I haven't preached for a few weeks. I've been on vacation and then, then, you know, we canceled last week and all the rest. I think one of the other reasons is 
I'm so focused on this. And on the thin ice, I'm kind of feeling wobbling beneath me. Knowing that some of you are going to go, I don't get that. I don't see it that way. Some of you are going to say, oh, yeah, preach it, brother. And, you know, and knowing that there's going to be differences of opinion and, and, and really thinking through, am I on good, solid ground or not? So we begin to look at that whole topic. And as we look at this theme, the overall idea is simply this, that men and women are called to celebrate God's design. God created something wonderful when he created men and women for lots of reasons. And God's word declares, we need to celebrate that. I am greatly, greatly concerned in our culture. I said the directions we are moving in, and one of the reasons is because of the confusion of what it means to be men and women. What God's word says about gender. How we're to live that out. And the attitude of a culture that says, God, you have no right to tell me what I am or what I want to be. We see it all around. We see it on, what was it, Facebook or Google, who came up with dozens of different gender designations. Beloved, unless there's a biological problem, a chromosomal problem, there's only two genders. You're either a man or you're a woman. That's what God's word is going to teach us. And as we begin to look at it, we need to understand this. That humanity is called upon to live according to the design that God has established. We want to take a little bit of a look at that design this week and over the weeks to come. Now, as we get into this, the first thing we want to understand is this. That our understanding of humanity is grounded and some very basic biblical principles. In a few moments, I want to go to Genesis chapter 1 and look at that passage in an exegetical way, in a, in a way that says this word means this, this word means this, this is the grammar, the syntax of the particular passage. But before I do that, I want to lay out four principles that I think need to govern our thinking in this area. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at these four principles. I believe they're found all the way through Scripture. That they begin in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. And that you see God's Word interacting with those principles over and over and over again as you make your way through the pages of Scripture. And it's these four principles that we need to keep sometimes in tension. Sometimes they draw us in sort of different ways as we think through these implications. But there are four principles that are the foundation of what I believe God's word has to say on gender. It is not a major theme in scripture. But it is a theme that is found there. 
Now, as you begin to work through these four principles that we're going to be using over the next several weeks, those four principles are this. First of all, our humanity is by God's design. It's not an accident. It's not an accident that we are created male and female. It's not an accident that we are created in this unique way. It's not an accident that we are created with certain abilities in terms of the way we think and the way that we interact and the way. It was all by God's design. It was God's design that as creatures, we can communicate back and forth to one another. We can share our hearts and our thoughts. We can talk about our plans for the future. We can talk about our choices and our abilities. It is not an accident that that exists. It is not an accident that when God was establishing the family and designing the family, he designed it to be a man and a woman coming together and to raise their children. Now we have to be careful because we understand that God has a design. This is what he wants us to be. But the reality of living in a fallen world causes us to struggle with that reality at times. Sometimes it's simply a result of living in a fallen world where corruption takes place around us and we have nothing to do with it. In reading about gender, I've gotten more information about chromosomes than I ever thought I would need to. And X and Y chromosomes and X and X chromosomes and XXXX chromosomes and all of the rest. There are people who are born with a struggle of their gender identity because of the very chromosomes that come together. That is a breaking of the pattern that God had established. It's not a result of the person who was born. It's not even a result of what their parents did. It's a result of living in a fallen world. God's design is that a man and woman would spend their entire lives together. But there's something that happens. Sometimes it's called death. Seldom are people directly responsible for their own deaths. Sometimes. There's divorce. As Jesus was teaching about divorce, he said to those Pharisees that had gathered together that God's design is that a man and woman should not divorce, but there is chosen wickedness in the world that sometimes leads to divorce. That's not God's pattern. But that happens. On our wedding rings, Cindy and I, when we were doing our wedding rings, on the inside, we have a very romantic saying on the inside of our rings. Thus saith the Lord, I hate divorce. Isn't that romantic? I don't know how romantic it is, but there were days when we wanted to take out those rings and read them. We've been married 36 years. There were days. But if it's possible for me to live by God's pattern, I don't condemn those that have a struggle. I don't condemn those that may find that because of the world and the fallenness of our world, there are are different realities for them that they have to take God's principles and apply to. But there is a pattern. 
God began a pattern. Let us make man in our image. In our image, let us make him male and female. That's a pattern. God designed. And we're going to look at that particular a little bit more this morning. Here's the second principle. That our humanity involves an equality that reflects the God's head essential equality. That when it comes to being human, we are all equal before God. And we're going to look at that quite a bit this morning when we look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Did I say 20? Genesis 1, 26 through 31. I don't know if it's the way I said it. But that idea of equality goes all the way through Scripture. You begin in Genesis chapter 1 where God says, let us make man in our image, male and female, let us make them. And then he goes on to say, and he said to them, plural, male and female, be fruitful and multiply. And he said to them, male and female, subdue and rule the earth. Subdue and rule the earth. Both are there. When Adam saw Eve for the very first time, the declaration of equality is so clear. You are bone of my bone. You are flesh of my flesh. Whoa, we fit together. You continue to see it as you work your way through Scripture. Do you know that in the Old Testament, men and women served in every single leadership office but one? That's priest. That's significant. When I read through Scripture and I come to the life of Jesus and I see him interacting with women, he blew apart the culture of his day. As he asked women to be in his traveling band as they traveled together from place to place, there is a real sense of honor with women. Jesus says to Mary and Martha something that absolutely astounds us if we understand first century culture. As they are busy in their home, he looks at Mary and Martha, and Martha comes to him and says, tell Mary to come help me in the kitchen. And Jesus says to her, Mary has chosen the better place to sit at my feet and learn. To us, that may not sound significant. In that culture, it was earth-shaking. When you read through the book of Acts, that sense of equality becomes so very, very clear as you see women serving in every position of authority except that of elder. It's significant when you come to the epistles and you read Paul saying, there is neither slave or free. There is neither Jew or Gentile. There is neither man or woman. When it comes to our place before God, there is equality in who we are as human beings. It's a theme that goes all the way through. Are there some passages that are difficult to understand? Yeah, we're going to get to those. Later. 
God's word clearly declares that we stand before God as equals. And you can't try what Adam and Eve tried. You see, we stand before God in equal responsibility. Adam, why did you fall? It was the woman you gave me that made me fall. No, not good try. Nope. Eve, why did you eat of that fruit? It wasn't me, it was the serpent. All are called, both are called to accountability. Both stand responsible before God. It's a theme that runs all the way through Scripture. But there's another theme that runs through Scripture. And it's this one. Our humanity involves fundamental differences expressed through our gender. Some of you will remember the, the Time magazine headline of about 25 or maybe 30 years ago, maybe longer, I'm getting old, that declared to the world, men and women are different. (gasps) Amazing. But God's word says that. We're different. Cindy and I do not see things the same way. My Boys did not see the same things the same way as my girl did. The other day we were driving, Cindy and I have been away for a weekend, and we were driving back, and we drove by this place where they were doing some construction. They were doing big road work construction. And as we drove by, there was this place that says, please turn off cell phones, explosives in use. And as we drove by, there was this kind of this beautiful off-ramp that had this greenery and all the rest. And, and we both looked at it and said, oh, wow, that's really cool. We meant totally different things. Cindy meant how lovely this was with this green grass and these rolling hills that had been created. I was thinking, oh, cool. Wonder what that explosive did to blow that apart. Now, we can say that that's simply how we're nurtured. Do you know what's so amazing? Over and over again, science is demonstrating that it's not just nurture. It's our very nature. If you give a banana to a little girl, it becomes a baby. And I rock it. You give a banana to a little boy, what is it? Exactly. I remember one woman came in to me and said, I'm going to make sure that my children have had no, um, no exposure to differences in gender. And I'm never going to give them gender-based toys. And, and I'm just going to do all that. And I said to the woman, great, just don't ever give your son a banana. God's word says there's a difference. And we need to honor and respect that. And one of the things that I find so disgusting in our culture is how we mock the uniqueness of men and we mock the uniqueness of women. We do it in our marriages. We do it in our relationships. God says we ought to honor that difference. And it's all the way through Scripture. Again, when you come to Genesis chapter 2, there is a difference in the way God creates men and women. When you come to Genesis chapter 3, both are held responsible, equality, but the curse is different for men and women. 
When you read through the Old Testament, there is a difference in the ways that we are to act. In fact, it's very interesting in Deuteronomy, uh, I think it's what 22 verse 5, where, where and in giving of the law, God says this, men don't dress like women, women don't dress like men. Now, every culture, that's different. You know, and, I, you know, 50 years ago, it was women should never wear pants. <gasps> no, I think the theme there is not to give us a specific kind of dress, but just simply say, will you rejoice in the differences? When you wake, make your way through into the New Testament, you see it again. As Paul, particularly in his epistles, and Peter too, address men and women, men and women in different ways. One of the most amazing passages is found in Ephesians five twenty, beginning and then going on to twenty one, and all the way through to the end of chapter five. There, when Paul begins with a declaration of unity, be upotasso. We translate the word submissive. I think it's a poor translation of the word. But he says, be submissive, what? One to another. Equality. Do you know the word submission does not appear in Ephesians 5.21? It's simply translated into there when it says, wives to your husbands. What Paul is doing there, he's saying, here's the principle. We're to be upotasa. We're to place others in a position of more importance in how we look at life. Wives, here's a way to do it to your men. Men, here's a way to do it to your women. That sense of equality and difference is a theme you see all the way through Scripture. And then here's the last one. The last one is this, that our fundamental differences are most evident in our relational interactions. The more family-like our interactions, the closer those interactions, the more evident are those differences. I believe it's why God addresses the differences between men and women primarily in two areas. The family and the spiritual family. Nowhere else. He says these are the areas that are significant because these are the areas of closest interaction where those differences can be celebrated honored, rejoiced in, and maintained. Now, that's the next four weeks. Come on back and we'll expand it. But let me very quickly begin on that first one. God reveals his design. His design of humanity at the very moment of our creation. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 1. The two easiest chapters in the Bible to find are Genesis 1 and Revelation chapter 21. 
And what you see there is you see an emphasis in Genesis chapter 1 on two things. You see an emphasis on God's design, and you see an emphasis on unity within diversity, or diversity within unity, whichever way. There may be debates on exactly how God brought about creation. But I think that when you look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we'll look at more next week, I think you see some very basic principles that become the foundation that is worked out through the rest of Scripture. What you begin to see very, very clearly as you read through Genesis chapter 1 is that something very unique is happening here. When Moses was writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and you see there the interaction beginning in Genesis chapter 1, you see there that he wants to emphasize this incredible event of the creation of mankind. And so there is a pattern that you read through in Genesis chapter 1, as you read in the creation of light, you know, light and darkness, as you read the creation of the separation of land from sea, as you read about the, separ- the creation of plants, and you read about the creation of, of, of water and, and fish and all of that, there is a pattern that exists. And the pattern is basically this, God said, and it was so. Then he describes what they're to do and how they're to live. And then it ends with, and it was good. Suddenly, the pattern is broken. It's to draw our attention. And to say something unique is going on here. Pay attention. And so the author breaks that pattern in a number of different ways. First of all, he he demonstrates the importance of this by using the plural pronoun. Up to this point, it just said, God said, God said, and it was a first person plural. He said, God said. But then suddenly you come to verse 26. It says, then God said, and here comes the plural, let us. Make man in our image. And suddenly the plural is used. Now there's a lot of debate as to what that plural means. And I'm going to just kind of brush on it very very quickly. There are some that see this as sort of the royal plural. It's when the king or the king or the queen says, we say. Do you ever hear the queen talk? She always talks in the first person. I mean, I'm sorry, in the, in the third person. It's always we. It's always second person. It's always the plural. Some say it means that. The problem is that the pronouns that are used here always speak of number. Some think that it's just kind of self-talk. You know, when we, we say to ourselves, well, we came to the decision that. I don't think that's quite enough. Now, I don't think there's full-blown Trinitarian theology here either. Do you know what I do think? I think it's a relational context. And one of the things that God is making very, very clear is that God is a relational God, even among himself. 
Now, that's developed more as we go through, particularly in the New Testament. Moses wants us to say, pay attention. Something's going on here. Second thing that's going on here is it demonstrates the author's uniqueness through a relational interaction. There's talking back and forth. Let us make man in our image. And there's that that discussion, that, that interaction that's taking place. It's not shown in any other creative events. Thirdly, and this one becomes very, very important. There's a demonstration of a uniqueness here through an exceptional goodness. Always God has said, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then you come down to the end here. And it says, not that this is good in verse 31. But God saw all that he had made. And it was what? Very good. And we can discuss what all that means. But one thing it does mean is take a look here. Something's going on. And then finally, it demonstrates the unique nature of this creation. This is the only part of creation where God says, it's made in my image. In some, and I believe it's non-corporeal way, non-physical way, we look like God. We're like God. We're not God, but we're like him. Now, as you think that through, you come to these principles laid out. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, the first thing you notice there is that we are declared to be the image bearers of God. There are a couple ways you can read that. When you read in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. You can either read it as the preposition in, or you can read it as the preposition as. And I think as is better. Where God says, let us make man as our image bearer. And the reason for that is, in the ancient world, when I was an authority of something, one of the ways I showed that authority over that area, over that, 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 that land, over those people, is I would put a something in that place that was a demonstration of my image. It functioned as my image. Sometimes it was a statue that looked like me. Sometimes it was just a pillar. Sometimes it was just a sign of authority. One of the things that the Romans used was their legionnaire's eagle. But it was an image that said, we have authority here. Do you know the image that God uses to declare that he has authority over creation? It be us. But then he goes on to describe what that image is like. He says that image is like us. Now, we're not like God in that we have hands and feet and things like that. That's the way we're like other creation. God doesn't have hands and feet. 
Now, he became incarnate in Christ, yes, but God in his very essence is spirit. We're not like God because we have hands and feet. We're like God because our immaterial parts are like God is. We think, we feel, we communicate, we will, we desire, we emote. And we are like God in all those ways. You know, another cool way we're like God, we create life. Now, God created it through the speaking of his word. We create through a little different way. If you want to know what that is, come talk to me afterwards. We can get into more details. We are like God. He says, let us make man in our, as our image. And in our likeness, let us make him. We are delegated with authority to reign as God's representatives. As you continue to read down through, it says we are made in his image, in the image of, of God. We are to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And he says to us, we have an authority to rule in his place. But as God created this man and women, he created equality within a diversity. He says, man is made in my image. And then he goes on to say that both men and women are image bearers of God. Notice what he says there. So God created man, okay, mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created what? Them. We're all image errors of God. Whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, we stand before God as equal bearers of that image. No difference. But what's really cool is men and women are given equal authority to rule and subdue. Pronouns are essential here. Notice the pronouns. He says to them, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created, what's the pronoun? Them. Follow the pronoun. God blessed, what's the pronoun? Them. Verse 28. And said to, what's the pronoun? Them, be fruitful and multiply, rule over the fish of the sea and birds of the air. It's not Adam. It's not the man. It's mankind. And men and women share in that authority to do what God has called them to do. Men have no more or less. Women have no more or less authority to do what God has called them to do. And then finally, that equality and diversity is a further reflection of God. One of the cool things about God is he's one. Hear, O Israel, your God is one. Then we read in the New Testament that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
When you talk about their equality, it's called the ontological trinity. Ooh, go, go out all week and impress people with that theological terminology. And what we mean by this is this. First of all, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. Is the Son any less God than the Father? Please go like this. Is the Father any less Son than any less God than the Spirit? And you know, round and round. They're all equal. They're all same essence. They are all divine. They are all worthy of worship. They are all eternal. They are all omniscient and omnipotent and all of those, you know, omnis that we talk about. There is equality in the Godhead. And that's called the ontological trinity. But you know what else is interesting? How they relate to one another is not the same. Now, there's one way in which they're all the same. They are all other-focused. They are totally committed to the other. But the father relates to the son in a different way than the son relates to the father. The father relates to the spirit in a different way than the spirit relates to the father and that the spirit relates to the son. Jesus says it is the father that sends out the spirit. And a little later he says it's the father and son that send out the spirit. But it is the Father who sends out the Son, never the other way around. In his humanity, the Son was willing to do all that the Father and the Spirit told him to do. And so their interaction with one another is unique. And that's what we call the economic trinity. Now that's reflected in our humanity. For you see, before God, Adam and Eve are equal. Adam is just as much of an image bearer as Eve is. Eve is just as much of an image bearer as Adam is. But you know what? We relate to God differently. Women, you have an understanding of worship. I don't think I will ever fully understand. There's something the way that women worship. You know, you get a bunch of men together and you say, let's sing. And you hear, uh, get a bunch of women together and say, let's sing. And you hear, okay. There are differences in the way that men relate to God that women won't understand. But we are equal before him. And then there's a ways that we relate to one another in community. I am different from Cindy, and Cindy is different from me. Part of it is nurture, but part of it is just our very core gender. And it is in celebrating those differences. It is in that community that we most reflect the image of God. As we begin this interaction about maleness and femaleness, here's what I want you to be aware of. Some of us forget that we are equally image bearers before God and that God calls us to honor the differences of the other. 
Men, I hear us talking at times when we put down our wives for the differences in the way that they think and the differences in the way that they feel and the differences in the way that they interact. And God says, that's wrong. Women, I used to work night shift with a bunch of women nurses. I hear how you talk about your husbands. I hear about the disrespect. The put-downs of the differences in their sexual drive or their, the ways that they interact. Do you know there's more said between two guys on a punch on a shoulder than there is between women in five paragraphs? Is that to be mocked? The foundation of everything we're about to do is this. God designs us differently. But as followers of Christ, I saw that, Robin. Robin just punched Chris. You totally understood it. That's right. The basis of all of this is that God calls us to honor the uniqueness that he has given to each and every one of us. Take a look at your speech. Take a look at your attitude. Take a look at your interaction. And ask if I'm conforming to what God has called me to do and be. Father, thank you for what we see in your word. May we be those that reflect that uniqueness. May we be those that honor that uniqueness. May we be those that remember the equality we share with one another. Father, if there's someone here that doesn't know your son is their savior, we, we talk about that because that becomes the foundation of all that we do. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to make that decision. Come and speak to one of us on how to know that. But, Father, those of us that are your followers, that are your children, help us in all ways to reflect the uniqueness of what you have created to your glory. We ask in the name of your son.